0: no one tells you the practical implications of becoming a manager but it was kind of sink or swim and i had to learn to swim and made huge mistakes along the way i I had teams walk out and things like that it it was a big learning curve and when i had been in management for a while and was looking to hire people into roles around Mm. product management and that in the grc space I saw that so many people were having the same mistakes and we were seeing managers internally having the same mistakes that I made. And it's like, okay.
1: Are you ready to know what you don't know about Privacy Pros? Then you're in the right place.
2: Welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast by KZN Privacy Experts. The podcast to launch, progress, and excel your career as a Privacy Pro.
1: Hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy
3: and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I am your podcast host. With me today as my co-host is Jamal Ahmed, Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at KZient Privacy Experts. Jamal is an astute and influential privacy consultant, strategist, board advisor and fellow of information privacy. He's a charismatic leader, progressive thinker and innovator in the privacy sector who directs complex global privacy programs. He's a sought after commentator contributing to the BBC, ITV News, Euronews, Talk Radio, The Independent and The Guardian, amongst others. Uh, So Jamal, last week, last week to when we're filming this, we were at risk. What did we do at risk?
1: We was at the Excel in London, which is the largest exhibition space um, in London, and we was there representing the Privacy Pros Academy and speaking to all the amazing people who came to say hello to us that want to actually develop their professional skills when it comes to privacy. So some people actually want to get into data privacy, so we were speaking about the programs that we have suitable for them. Other people are already been in privacy for a few years and now they're thinking about moving up the role so they can have bigger impact be more happy, um, get more responsibility. And then we spoke to those people who are leaders, who just need a little bit more guidance, a little bit more confidence, a little bit more support on how they can actually show up better, do better and get that buy-in. And then there was one specific person I spoke to really stood out for me. She said, I've got this nickname as The Blocker and they see me as The Blocker in the, uh, across the organization. And I don't really like that title. Uh, what can I do to change it? So it's about how we can support her to show how how privacy can actually be a positive influence and help the organizational objectives, rather than she's here telling people what they shouldn't be doing. So it's all about cultural change and a little bit of training and empowerment. But those conversations were fascinating. We got to meet so many of our uh, peers there. We got to meet Richard Merrigal. We got to meet uh, Ibrahim from MacNow. We saw Max Schrems and all of the other fantastic speakers. There's too many speakers to name, so I'm not going to do that because I'll miss out uh, More than I name. It was a really great experience. Actually, we were there for two days, and just the um, passion that you heard from people about privacy and about protecting people's data and upholding those rights was fascinating. And uh, it just uh, was really nice to be able to see people again because a lot of these people haven't been out since the pandemic. Um, so it's really nice to be able to meet people, shake hands. Oh my gosh, how many people did I hug, Jamila? It was amazing.
3: I enjoyed it. Loads of stalls. Thank you for all the tote bags and free stuff. All the international stalls. I went up to them at the end, and I was like, "Oh, you don't want to take that back on the plane." I opened my bag, and they just put their freebies in. So I've got hand sanitizer to last me at least another ten years. So that's great.
1: I heard a rumor that you managed to collect so much stuff that that you went around bartering, and you Might ended up getting be. Amazon vouchers in exchange.
3: So I bartered from stall to stall because I thought that if you're on one stall, you're not necessarily going to have time to go and look at other stalls. So I went to one stall and traded a pair of socks and chocolates that I got on another stall for a 15 pound Amazon voucher. Then I traded some squishy balls because they gave me about 10. I traded one for some pens and one for some lynch chocolate reindeers and teddy bears. So yeah, bartering, key to any good conference.
1: All right, so if you're if you're going to a conference soon, guys, remember Jamila's top tips is collect as much stuff you can and then go and round battery. Yeah,
3: exactly. Right. So enough about what we've been up to. Uh our podcast this week, what's coming up? Well, we are speaking to a great guest who I'll introduce in a minute. We'll be speaking about the intersection of cybersecurity and privacy. Privacy as being good business practice. We'll be speaking about a book that he uh, wrote and top tips for managers. Uh, we'll be speaking a little bit more about the privacy landscape in Canada and a little bit, I hope about ethical hacking. So this will be a really interesting podcast. I'm going to introduce our guest Ross Saunders and he's a global privacy, defensive security and infrastructure specialist working with numerous industries to implement privacy programs and technical infrastructure controls. With a background in IT administration, software development and governance, risk and compliance, he is able to assist in a wide range of disciplines surrounding compliance, security and privacy, regularly assisting companies with advisory, awareness, campaigns and practical implementation of recommendations. Ross holds a master's degree in the management of technology and innovation and holds designations and certifications in privacy legislations, uh, the SIPI, ethical hacking, CEHV10 and paralegal practice. Ross uh, currently serves as the co-chair of the Johannesburg chapter of the International Association of Privacy Professionals and is a professional member of the Canadian Association of of Professional Speakers. In 2019, Ross published a book called This Is Not What I Signed Up For, a survival guide for first-time managers to help technical subject matter experts move into management roles and it's available for purchase in ebook and soft on Amazon and we will link that below. Welcome Ross, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Wow, Ross, what an impressive bio. <laughs> you
0: have to like sit there listening to it. It's like, oh, I, I feel shy with you. Do that.
1: I feel like you should be three times older than you look right now with all of that under your belt. Amazing, That's just amazing. just a ponytail. Before Paul
3: jumps into the questions, cause I know he's raring to go, I can see it in his eyes. We're gonna start with our icebreaker question. Uh, Ross, if you could clone anyone or anything, what would you clone?
0: Oh, anyone or anything. I- I probably regret the chaos that would go up in the house, but but our dog, I would likely clone her and have more of her, but it would be chaos.
3: Yeah. <laughs> what do you have?
0: We've got an Italian Greyhound cross Whippet, and oh. the biggest personality you've ever seen,
3: <laughs> Jamal. What, what would you? Would you, call, you... Well, you first. My
1: my question. My rules. I, I would clone myself <laughs> just so I could get more stuff done. That, yeah, that's a good I idea. Myself, so I, I'd keep one of my ver- one version of myself doing all the working stuff that I need to do. And then I'll take another version of myself and uh, park it with the family. So then work gets me and family gets me and everybody's happy. And I'm twice as happy because everything's getting done.
3: <laughs> I'd say I would clone my fridge because then I'd have twice the amount of food and I wouldn't have to go to the shops. <laughs> a variety of answers there. Interesting answers. Anyway... On to the data privacy uh, questions. Ross, why did you go into data privacy in the first place?
0: I'd half say I kind of landed in it, but it was, I think, by virtue of the kind of work that I was doing. uh, My career started out on the call desk and technical support side of things um, in IT companies. Moving through software development, did that for a while, and then kind of into management and, I suppose, Mm -hmm. what is now DevOps. And throughout all of that, I was working with software as a service companies It was as the cloud was coming into play and and so on. So we were doing a lot of technical defense of the servers that we had and, and the environments that we had. And with being in these small startup environments and these scrappy little businesses, putting together these software as a service tools, you inevitably get involved in the security aspects of it. But while we were doing that, got involved in privacy because around 2013 in South Africa, where I was based, uh, the privacy legislation in South Africa started getting drafted and, and was brought out and, and we had to start preparing for that. Um, little did we know it could be a really long preparation, but it was getting involved in the privacy side. And that that's kind of how I found myself there and tying into that, which kind of cemented the passion, was an identity theft which happened to me during that time where I was involved in all of this so that was kind of like seeing both sides of the coin of defending the environments but then also falling victim to it and that was kind of the you know what I'm not going to allow anyone else to have this happen.
3: Wow if you don't mind us asking what kind of identity theft was it?
0: Uh, There was a profile created of me basically thankfully it wasn't anything like a passport clone or anything like that they built a national identity document for me as well as fake pay slips and uh, proof of residence and all of that and they ended up just taking out accounts and accounts and accounts after accounts i purchased i don't know how many laptops lounge suites patio furniture oh all of this that i never ever saw <laughs> but yeah. woke up to a drained bank account a few months in a row uh, and then you're playing catch up to try and get rid of it uh, yeah. for a long time
3: oh my god so yes yeah, i'm un- understandable why you wouldn't want anyone to go through the same
1: i'm sorry to hear you had to go through that ross but if that's what has led you into serving so many people and helping all of these businesses in canada then i guess there is some positive to take away from it
0: yeah and i I was really really lucky because working in the governance risk and compliance space for so long i mean my in my team in the company i was in i had certified fraud examiners So I had this beautiful resource available to me as to what to do in that circumstance. Uh, But I realized that most people don't know what to do in that kind of circumstance. So I I had a a leg up on getting identity protection and things like that, but I wanted to bring it out. And that's where the speaking started as well, to talk to people like what to do to protect yourselves.
1: Yeah. So, Ross, I hear that the Canadian protection enforcement has get a new set of teeth and that the fines are going to be much larger. What's that done for the <laughs> privacy landscape in Canada?
0: Well, I think the landscape here is is very interesting at the moment. And, and there are people saying, you know, that this is starting to be reminiscent of kind of 2018 Europe <laughs> with new things coming in there with the GDPR. But we've got new bills that have been drafted after the, previous bull fell away and the new one is looking to be coming out soon all has it so there's new federal legislation that we're looking at but then there's the provincial legislations that are there and quebec released their privacy legislation uh last year so we have a bit of a in, in some cases a scramble and in some cases that people are not aware that what's coming so we're seeing two sides of that coin i think
1: must be a very busy time for Bamboo Consulting right now.
0: It is indeed.
1: <laughs> On that question, when you are looking to increase the team, or when you're looking to hire, and as your experience as a manager, uh, which led to you actually writing the survival guide for first time managers, what qualities or skills do you look for for those specifically, specifically privacy managers?
0: That's a really interesting one, and it's, it's something we've wrestled with quite a bit as to mm. what we're going to look for and i mean we we've just been going through this process now we are we were hiring we've we've found someone but i think between sharon and myself my colleague from from bamboo we're really adamant about getting the right fit you know i i think we are not the average stuffy advisory company we want to be fun we want to be interesting and and we look for people that have that same kind of aptitude so you know privacy is super big uh, and to try and find someone who knows everything is going to be very very difficult hmm. so we look for a lot of what's the fit going to be with us but also looking for skills that are different to ours we want to kind of get this positive result out of it uh, as opposed to just strengthening skills we already have so we we look in different spaces we we've looked at folks from totally different industries to see where it relates and it's been a very interesting process um seeing people from the marketing industry, seeing people from legal industry, from tech industry, because everyone kind of has a hand in privacy in, in these circumstances. Yes. Uh, and you've got a different experience from each one. So, so we look into, into these different spaces, and we, we're having folks coming in from a health side now. So there we've got another experience coming in.
1: So that's yes. interesting. Um, and the next thing I was going to speak in there was uh, uh, some top tips for first-time managers.
0: so I mean I think the biggest things that we go through it's with the the book as well is no one tells you the practical implications of becoming a manager there's there's a load of models out there and you can follow this and you can take this checklist but it doesn't tell you necessarily about things like the soft skills you're going to have to deal with and the conflicts and and that side of things Hmm. so I think you know one of the biggest things you need to learn when when you're going into management for the first time is 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 you need to manage. Uh, You're not doing the technical specialization as much anymore. Um, And and that does get difficult if you get promoted and you need to work out that balance because there will be a handover, but you have to, from coming from being a sole specialist, Mm -hmm. learn to delegate to people and and make sure that they can take it on. And that takes listening, that takes communication, that takes ongoing rapport with the people that you're working with. and, And that's a totally different skill set.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think a lot of people I know have had managers where they've been promoted because they're good at their technical stuff. But when you try and talk to them, or you need the people side, they're just, they don't quite get that. So I think that's really important. So what would you say the main reason is why you decided to write your book
0: pretty much exactly that so i mean that's how i found myself in management i was working well in the devops side and and all that and really enjoying it Uh, and highly technical we were in a very specialized team um, and then promoted and uh, it was during a company sort of uh, merger and acquisition and uh, everything got restructured and that's how i found myself there but it was kind of sink or swim and i had to learn to swim and made huge mistakes along the way I, I had teams walk out and things like that it was a big learning curve and when i had been in management for a while and was looking to hire people into roles mm-hmm. around product management and that in the grc space i saw that so many people were having the same mistakes and we were seeing managers internally having the same mistakes that i made and it's like okay i i have a bit of a passion project now to get this on paper as to you know these are the mistakes i've made uh, let, let's try not make them again and And that's where it came from. It's a lot of practical things that I I learned throughout my sort of management career.
1: So on on that note, uh, Ross, what's three of the most common, biggest mistakes you see first-time managers making?
0: The biggest one, I would say, is still doing the work that you were doing previously and not being able to delegate that that side of things. But then I think it, it comes into things like listening skills. So, you know, actually hearing what someone is saying, it, it, when you come into that management space, you're, you're often wanting to impress because you're there. So you listen to respond as, a, as opposed to listening to actually listen and take it in yeah. uh, and then respond quietly because you, you want to make a good impression and people will respond to try and get that across. But you've already made the good impression. You're in management now. You need to learn to listen and bring people in and actually hear their opinions and take it to heart. Uh, and I think that ties into perhaps a third one is is being humble. You're not going to have all the right ideas at all, all the right times. Uh, listening to the teams, bringing the team response in is, is a very important thing too.
1: Great. Thank you for sharing those tips. So here's what I've got from uh, those top three tips. And I'm sure there's so, more, so many more of those you can um, learn from the book, which is, what I'm going to go and do straight after this podcast. So, uh, Ross said, the first thing is what he found a common mistake that he was making and a lot of first-time managers are making. And if you're a first-time manager, you can probably relate to this. is you're still doing the thing you were doing before he was promoted to becoming a manager, that technical thing, you need to find a way of letting go of that and actually trusting people in your team and delegate that. Because the moment you do that, you free yourself up to do actually what you've been promoted to do, which is manage and not run that process or look after that technical aspect that you was looking after. So the first thing is learn to delegate, trust your team, um, and stop doing the same work you was doing beforehand because your role has changed. Second thing, uh, Ross, you said, is actually we need to listen. As, as first-time managers, we need to listen, not just to respond to somebody and have a quick answer or a smart answer, but actually listen to really hear and make the person feel that they've been heard and then take that on board before you come up with any quick decisions. Actually reflect on that and then come back. And I think the third thing I really took away from that was it's not just I know everything and I have the best ideas because you probably don't. And that's probably going to lead to self-doubt and imposter syndrome later down the line. But it's actually collaborating with your team, uh, listening and getting feedback from the people that are doing some of these technical things who might actually be quite insightful and useful uh, when you're actually making some of these decisions. And then to take on that information before you make any final decisions. Have I got that about right, Ross?
0: Yeah, I think you summed that up beautifully.
3: (laughs) That's what you were saying about listening. There you go, well done, John.
0: (laughs) Excellent, excellent.
3: (laughs) So something I wanted to ask you, and we were speaking briefly about um, before we started recording, is ethical hacking. I think you're the first person we've had on who's got some experience. You've got your certificate uh, or your CEHB10 in ethical hacking. What is ethical hacking? Because I think I said to you before. When you think of a hacker, you think of someone in a balaclava in a darkened room going into a <laughs> bank.
0: Yeah, I didn't pack my hoodie right now, so I should have that on. Uh, <laughs> I've got my- <laughs> uh, Oh, There we go, representing the cyber side. <laughs> we, when we talk about ethical hacking, it's 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 the same methodology. It's knowing the methodologies, the tools, the 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 way. Plain old hacker, I suppose. Yeah. would be attacking a system and, and it's learning to do this in an ethical way. And I mean, part of what we see from that is in the name, the ethics is how yeah. do you approach a company to do these kind of tests and things like that? You know, there are companies with their bounty programs, things like that, but there are also companies that perhaps don't know that they should be looking at these and that there are ethics involved in actually approaching these companies to say, look, We may find vulnerabilities. Can we get permission to look at your environment? Can we do certain attack simulations on your environment? Because you you can in ethical hacking and trying to get into a system, you can end up taking it down, which that is a dangerous situation to be in because you could cause a breach in, in the process. So, so there's the ethics involved in it, but it's knowing those techniques that would be used out in the field for offensive attacks. Um, and then how to defend against those. So at all, your red teams, your blue teams, your purple teams all start stemming out from that ethical hacking side of things.
1: Right. So I was re- recently delivering a, uh, the ultimate CIPM program for privacy leaders, and one of the questions that came up was, what is the red team, what is the blue team, and what is this purple team? So you have all of these lovely colors, and it I got me <laughs> thinking of Skittles. But for, for those of us listening who are not really familiar with what the different colors represent when it comes to penetration testing or ethical hacking could you just break it down for us
0: yeah absolutely i think it, there are so many acronyms that get thrown around and terms that get thrown around like we're seeing a lot of shift left now which is just moving yeah. security earlier in the process but when we're talking about red team blue team purple team it's the different aspects that you're going to have from cybersecurity side so your red team is generally an attack kind of team an offensive team that would be doing trying to get into systems in any way possible things like that your blue team is going to be more that defensive team uh, putting the the walls up to make sure that the red team can't get in so you, you have this defensive and offensive side of things that you're looking at on both sides and when we're talking about purple team it's kind of the the blend of the two of those or we've seen it involved in DevOps and DevSecOps, where you'll have people that, that kind of have a bit of a, a both roles in place uh, where they're handling defensive and offensive.
1: Thank you. Thanks for that question. So the red team is they're going to focus on how to breach the system, how to get in and how to attack. Your blue team is a the defense. They're there to guard against what the red team would potentially be doing and making sure they've got the defenses. And your purple team is like a hybrid of attackers and defenders all together in one team.
0: Yeah. We've seen a couple of different kind of approaches to Purple Team. But in general, we'd look at it that way. So so it's exploiting the vulnerabilities and then making the, sure the vulnerabilities aren't there to exploit. And, and it's a race between the two, I suppose.
1: And I think it's something that's really important. And I encourage uh, my, all of our clients to get these uh, penetration tests from these ethical hackers, because you would rather find out what your vulnerabilities are yourself from somebody who's doing it ethically and saying, hey, these are the problems. And it gives you an opportunity to do something about it Rather than find out when you've been held to ransom, when you've had a breach, when you've had to turn your systems down, when you haven't been able to serve patients, when you haven't been able to serve to your customers, and then the reputational damage comes into it, and then, of course, enforcement action. So it's so much of a better investment to invest in that while things are okay, so then you can identify your vulnerabilities, look at where you want to prioritize fixing those, and then get your blue team in to patch off, identify, and mitigate those vulnerabilities, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's great that you bring that up, you know, not only for the breach situation, but it's also great. This is where that intersection of privacy and security comes in, in that when a company that's privacy mature is going to start doing a vendor due diligence on you, chances are you're going to be requested that kind of information. Have you done vulnerability assessments, penetration tests, et cetera? If you haven't done it, that's a time-consuming process to do, and you can hold up a vendor process um, by having that. Uh, or not having it. But when you have that in place, you can provide it. The vendor onboarding process goes a lot smoother. You can prove your compliance a lot better. And and you basically have a better turnaround time on on what you would do on your day-to-day business.
3: So with hacking, that's kind of cybersecurity. How's the intersection between cybersecurity and privacy? Are they kind of done in separate from each other or do they merge together? I
0: think the two are completely intertwined, but places still go and do them separately, which is a risk in my view. So mm-hmm. you you have privacy that will fall to the legal department or compliance. And then you have cybersecurity that either falls to a security department or IT. And never the two shall meet and they don't talk to each other. And then you end up with conflicts and clashes and one does something the other doesn't like. and it, the wrong people are around the table or they're not mm. at the table at all. Uh, but if we look at the privacy principles, if we look at the OECD principles, if we look at the principles that are in many laws around GDPR, POPI, PIPEDA, we're seeing these components that say you need to have security. You've, you've got to have security for privacy. Uh, you've got to have your security safeguards under POPI. It's, it's all there. You've got your technical and organizational measures when you sign SECs. A lot of that is cybersecurity related. Yes, there's policies and, and organizational controls, but there's technical controls. And I think a lot of the cybersecurity aspects come in there. Uh, and similarly, when you're dealing with the cybersecurity side, you're, you're dealing with the, that CIA triad the confidentiality, the integrity, the availability. And those three also relate through to privacy because confidentiality, looking after the information that's there. Yes, cybersecurity is concerned with more than just personal information, but it's completely intertwined because you still have to have classifications of data. You still have to be knowing what your security safeguards are on things. Who's doing role-based access control for things? Uh, the two, I think, play together so well and really mm-hmm. should be integrated because you should have privacy talking to cybersecurity and and vice versa. When you when you have an incident and you've got everyone talking together and, and cooperating, the incident runs very smoothly because you have early like communication between the two teams and you know that, okay, we might have a notification requirement coming up down the line, who needs to be involved from privacy side, security side, instead of just privacy finding out after the incident has become a breach. It, it, that upfront involvement helps a lot with those 72-hour turnarounds and, and things like that.
1: I couldn't agree more with uh, everything you just said there, Ross. And it's one of the things that we really encourage uh, to to, to all of our mentees and to the organization that we work with is we need to break out of these silos of security over here and privacy over here and start working together and having those conversations. In fact, where where, where possible, I say they should all actually be sitting around each other because then they can hear what's happening. And the thing is, there's also cost efficiencies of that. Because oftentimes you'll see that they're duplicating efforts. They might be using this software. They might be using this software. They might be using X vendor. They might be using Y vendor. But they're still trying to do the same things. So why are we duplicating that? And why don't we see how we can actually save money and increase the operational goals or the business objectives by working together? Because what you'll find is there's a lot of crossover. And the moment that they both accept that, hey, security is there to protect data, privacy is there to also protect data, We both have the same objective. So why are we trying to figure it out on our own? Why don't we just do it together? Because there are, like you said, both technical measures. So that's your firewalls, that's uh, antivirus software, that's your data loss prevention stuff, and then you've got the organizational measures, your policies, your processes, your standards, your training and awareness. Why would we want to do those things separately? Why don't we see where we can cross over and you know? We do see a lot of cyber incidents. Why don't we bring that into some of our policies and why don't we actually talk about that? Instead of having 50 different policies that no one's ever going to read, why don't we have four really good ones that have practical examples, both from a privacy and a security point of view? And when you do that, you actually see cultural change, you see organizational efficiencies, and you start seeing the positive uh, effects of security and privacy. Rather than where it was just a drain on on the business, because this is a problem we, we you see when you talk stakeholders is they will see those functions as cost centers rather than how they're actually promoting and providing and bringing in revenue. But companies like Apple, companies like Amazon have actually proven to us that you can actually use privacy to cultivate trust, to inspire confidence, and ultimately increase uh, revenue as well.
0: And I mean, we've seen it in practice, and exactly what you mentioned there. We talk about things like breach plans, where you have Privacy has their breach plan. Security has their breach plan. Generally, they're under the same headings of identify, remediate, and and contain and all of that, but they have slightly different steps. But it's two separate processes, and it's time-consuming. You can merge those into bringing in privacy where it's necessary, security where necessary, and it helps. We've even seen cost savings um, for things like setting retention periods better. So you've got a shorter retention period. Your cloud storage costs go down. Uh, because you're not saving so much data out there. And your risks go down because you don't have the data at that time either. So very beneficial there.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Right. So one of the things that we wanted to speak about, Ross, is privacy as being a good business practice. So we're speaking about how sometimes companies are reluctant to adopt privacy practices because they just feel it won't add value to their business, it's more of a chore than can give them benefit. Do you see that a lot?
0: We do. And I I think it comes into a lot of how you implement privacy. There's a benefit and a curse in that the privacy legislations don't tell you step by step what to do. And the curse is then you need to figure out what to do. But the blessing is, you know, we can do this according to how our business operates, which is great because you can then bring in these components very, very well as to how the business is running. And you can relate the components of privacy to business objectives and to business KPIs, executive KPIs. And that's where you get this kind of seamless integration. And yes, privacy is a lot of work upfront to get everything in place if you don't have anything in place. Once it's in place, it's maintenance. And and Mm -hmm. you can, as as Jamal said, Apple does this well. You've got this trust from your consumers that you can bring in, and it, it's it's a marketing boon that you can have that, that really helps. Um, and, and it is good business practice. If we look at principles of, of data protection, about being accountable for the information we have, about specifying our purposes, about limiting data, about being open about it, having transparency, all these translate into good business practices as far as I'm concerned, and, and it can, Be beneficial to your business and it can streamline your business. A lot of places haven't thought about these considerations. And when you do start mapping your processes out, your activities, you find out across the business what you're doing double work on. You find out which activities and which departments take too much data. And it it really is a a benefit to the business. It's a good practice to do it.
1: Yeah. And just to add to what Ross was saying, the reason a lot of businesses, a lot of stakeholders I speak to in businesses on the consulting side, they find they have this attitude is because, as Ross mentioned, the privacy laws, they're not very prescriptive. They're more generic and they give you guiding principles because they realize that how one business does something, another business will do it completely differently. How you do something in one industry is completely different to the risks in the other industry. And therefore, when you get lawyers, and if if you're a lawyer and you're listening, I mean, no respect, but one of the things lawyers find very challenging is then how to operationalize that theory. Like, oh, they're great at writing policy. They're great at writing uh, loads of documents. But then the business has to go and actually put that into practice. And the reason businesses have this attitude is because what they find is the lawyers that they've uh, brought in or the, the consultants they brought in, they're giving them very rich, templated frameworks. The business can't work with templates that they've created for somebody else. They need something that's bespoke. And that's why we need more pragmatic, we need more practical professionals like Ross, like Sharon, like we do at KZN to actually go and really serve those clients, build the solutions that's right for them in a way that's tailored to the way that business works, identifying the risks they have, and also in line with the business objectives, just using basic common sense. And this is why we attract so many uh, lawyers to the Privacy Pros Academy is because they've identified they're struggling a little bit and it's causing them some kind of self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And it's actually making them feel a quite miserable about what they want to do. And instead, what we will help them to do is to really understand the principles and how they apply. By often, all you only have to do is just take a step back. Like too many people focus too much on the details and the technicalities and all oh, the nuances of the article but actually, all you have to do is take a step back, look at the bigger picture. What is the organization doing? What are their objectives? What are the guiding principles that we need to follow here? And Ross mentioned, you know, you've got the privacy by de- de- design and default principles from um, Anne Kavukin. The GDPR gives you principles. The OECD guidelines you principles. The FIPS, they give you principles. So it doesn't matter what part of the world you're in. All you need to do is find a mentor who can really help you to take that theory that you're so great at and really enhance yourself as a professional by just getting that practical and pragmatic understanding of how to operationalize a theory and then you can make massive change. and instead of seeing being this blocker, you will actually be the hero who's helped all aspects of the business and you've also helped some of the business objectives when it comes to getting more clients, getting more customers, and you can feel great, it will make you be more happy, you will get more success from your career and ultimately lead you to have more freedom.
0: Very well put.
3: Ross, you've said that privacy is not a showstopper. What do you mean by that?
0: I think it, it, it leads on very well from, from what Jamal was saying now. you know, I think a lot of companies get scared of privacy as well, thinking, you know, if we have to do these assessments that our clients are asking us to do, our vendors are asking us to do, then the fact that we've answered no to one thing means it's a showstopper and we can't deal with them. And then it's chaos, panic, disorder. How do we get this stuff in? But it's it's not the case. And I think uh, it comes in that you know just because you don't have a certain aspect it doesn't mean that it's a showstopper. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it all the time in these assessments where someone will get an assessment and and they suddenly don't have a specific policy inside the business and like, Oh no, we can't get, it. we've got to draft this policy quickly because it's got to be out there and before we can get the deal. Yeah. No, it's down to the substance. Do you have something similar that covers that? Do you even need that? Uh, it might be a case that you're providing this service. You're being asked for privacy assessments, but you don't deal with personal information and it's not actually valid for your service offering that you're giving, or you're not a, business critical service. Therefore you don't need high availability and uptime. So I think that's where, where I come in that, that, you know, privacy is not a showstopper. It's there to help with that good business practice and, and make sure we're holding ourselves to a good standard, but it doesn't also mean that business stands still. And I think a lot of businesses get scared of the whole privacy thing because now it's going to stop their business. They've got to stop and do these projects for years. And, and, and what's the outcome? But it's not that it's a showstopper.
3: It makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much. Um, so the last thing before we wrap up, Ross, uh, we like to get our guests to ask Jamal a question. It can be about anything.
0: Okay. I would ask, what is something that because of your profession and working in the privacy space, Someone does not know about you. outside of
1: that, I like this. Thanks, Ross. What is it that someone doesn't know about me?
0: Yeah, outside of the profession.
1: All oh, right. Well, uh, where do I start? I'm so much fun the <laughs> work. What might be interesting to know is that I'm a trained Ericksonian master hypnotherapist, and before my life in privacy, I used to do a lot of life coaching, which was helping people from get from where they. Where at the time we're feeling a bit stuck and frustrated with certain things to get into where they want to be in an area, for example, to focus on their career or to focus on some of the other challenges they might have in life. And what is great and what some people might have uh, discovered when they've trained with me is I bring a lot of those skills and a lot of that into what we do. And I do a lot of uh, hypnotic or subconscious suggestions, positive suggestions to help them. And when you see people leaving their recommendations, you'll see how they talk about this transformation they've had and how they've gone through the boost of confidence. It's all because I'm able to bring what I know from before into that and really serve.
0: That's really fascinating.
3: (laughs) I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking forward to the day when you bring a pocket watch into the meeting (laughs) and hypnotize us all. Maybe I'm under hypnosis. Maybe I'm under hypnosis.
1: Maybe.
3: Yeah. Um, it was great speaking with you, Ross. We really enjoyed the podcast and definitely learned a lot. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for um, having me. This was a lot of fun. and and from on behalf of all the listeners ross thank you for sharing some of those valuable gems and if anyone wants to grab the book again it is called this is not what i signed up for a survival guide for first-time managers
3: if you
2: enjoyed this episode be sure to subscribe like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released
1: remember to join the privacy pros academy facebook group where we answer your questions
2: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class privacy pro.
1: Please leave us a four or five star review.
2: And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast,
1: or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about,
2: please send an email to team at ksient.co.uk.
1: Until next time, peace be with you.